It has been 32 months since the attack on the U.S. Capitol that disrupted a joint session of the U.S. Congress in the process of completing the presidential election results. More than 1,100 defendants have been charged in nearly all 50 states and the District of Columbia. More than 110 individuals have been found guilty of felonies. Kyle Cheney of Politico has spent a lot of time during these past months covering the trial in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia. We ask him to give us an overview of what these court proceedings have looked like up close. Kyle Cheney, what would you say to somebody that asks you, what, what's it like to cover the D.C. District Court about the January 6th events? There's no such thing as, as covering the January 6th events because there's so much to actually cover. There's no way to, act, to do it all. In fact, there's so many dozens of cases pending all at the same time uh, that some of them go completely uncovered, and there's probably important and newsworthy information in them. But we sort of, again, when, when you're charging more than 1,000 people in a two-year span, two and a half years now, um, and then maybe 1,000 more to come, uh, there's only you have to sort of pick your spots, and we have informed ways of doing that. But this, this story is just sprawling and important, and and uh, to get to really get into it, um, I mean, there's no way to get fully into it, but you can cover maybe the most important aspects. When did you start covering this story? On January 6th, um, and in fact, before in a, in a strange way, because I had been covering been covering a lot of Trump-related investigations, which morphed into covering his his effort to try to stay in power through the courts and what ultimately became uh, through Congress. And, and I'd been eyeing that with some wariness about the potential for violence. Uh, there was some fear on Capitol Hill. I was a congressional reporter uh, specifically. And um, when that when the violence happened, when the, when the riot broke out at the Capitol, um, I knew that that was going to become the story that I covered from that point on. Um, again, because we'd covered the buildup and the march to that point um, and some of the processes that preceded it. Uh, and so then it was, became all-consuming, trying to, trying to understand how he had gotten there and uh, the two levels of this thing. We've, I think you know, you're familiar with this. There's the level of what happened in the White House there's a le- and, and at that level, and then there's the level of what happened on the ground on January 6th with the violence and how those two connected. So what is political? So Politico, uh, where I've worked for the last uh, 11 and a half years, um, and it's, uh, you know, we cover everything in Washington. It's really, we really cover power, the power centers of, of in America. We co- try to cover the way power is exercised by the, by the branches, by the White House, by, the, by Congress, and, and I guess in political campaigns, too, and, and how the, the exercise of that power uh, changes over time, uh, how the parties sort of jockey for control. And so I think in the in, historically, Politico has kind of been stereotyped as a horse race coverage kind of place. I think maybe when it started, it was more like that, very quick sort of sugar rush type stories about you know raw politics. And I think it's become much more uh, complex than that. We cover policy just as aggressively as we cover politics now. We cover the courts. I, I work as part of a legal team that covers explicitly uh, not just the D.C. court, but all the courts in the Supreme Court, um, and so so we we try to hit everything in the way that the way the power is exercised through those institutions. Does the public at large have access to Politico? 
They do. We're, we're available, politico.com. I'm, I'm a frequent uh, Twitter user and try to share all, everything we can. Uh, I guess it's X now. Um, share everything we can that way and you know, blast out as much as we can, but it's, it's all available. Uh, we do have a subscriber component, Politico Pro, that really drills into very deep into the policy weeds. And I actually started on that team. I was a healthcare reporter for a long time. Um, and uh, we have you know, tech and, and trade and things that are subscriber-based and a lot of people on, on Capitol Hill, for example, subscribe because they're interested in really detailed. Describe what it's like inside one of these courtrooms during these trials. Sure. So there's the high-profile trials, like the one, uh, you know, like, the, the, for example, the Proud Boys, uh, where the you know, leaders of, you know, essentially on the ground on January 6th, uh, that got a lot of coverage. Dozen, you know, dozens of reporters checked in on that, at least for part of it, if not all of it. Um, and then there's the ones that nobody sees. You know, as I mentioned, there are a lot of things that don't get covered, and you can walk into a courtroom where a really important proceeding's happening and have no, find nobody in there. And it's always remarkable the kind of news that gets made in these courtrooms when potentially no one's watching. Um, I think it's because you, you have about 20 judges, and at any given time, you have 20 different proceedings, um, and there's aren't that many reporters uh, to cover them all. But they're um, they're like little snapshots of or snippets of of January 6th, and sometimes you get powerful testimony from police officers who suffered that day, from people who witnessed it, from the from the defendants themselves. A lot of them have actually taken the stand and talked about why they did what they did. And, and there's really interesting um, almost vignettes about individual people and how they ended up where they did and why that paint a fuller picture when you put them together. In a recent uh, sentencing procedure, Officer Cooley from the uh, Capitol Hill Police came in and said her thing about what happened on January the 6th. What was that all about? Sure. Actually, uh, her name is Shea, uh, Shea Cooney. Cooney. Okay. Cooney. And, and she um, uh, was one of the officers who was at the front line as the mob on January 6th approached the Capitol. Um, and they included a couple of leaders of the Proud Boys, as I mentioned, and, and they uh, she essentially was not quite face-to-face with them, but just off to the side and witnessed uh, a couple of those Proud Boys leaders dismantle a fence. Um, and now that one act alone didn't cause the riot, but it was an important part of the mob reaching the foot of the building. Um, and she witnessed that. And she talked about, you know, that's a very technical component. She talked about much more visceral things that she witnessed. She saw her officer, fellow officers in severe pain, getting attacked, getting overrun by this mob. People in, in, in uh, you, know, the, you know, she saw blood and she saw people getting sick. Um, this, the, the smell of the, the chemical sprays that were being launched in both directions um, was just an overpowering. And, you know, I think hearing her speak about it was powerful because um, she said, uh, and, and when she talked about that, she'd never talked about it before, and she broke down. You know, a lot of the times these officers try to maintain their their composure and try to keep it professional, and she couldn't. Um, and that, that was really powerful to hear. At the end of all this, when they're about to be sentenced, what impact do you think that has on a judge? Uh, I, I think it means a lot. I think I think <clears throat> a lot of these judges, at this point, two and a half years later, they have heard so much of this that their ideas and their impressions of January 6th are fairly set. And in fact, I'd be surprised if judges haven't heard s- several times from some of these same officers or at least or different sets of officers who similarly suffered that day um, or saw their colleagues suffered or uh, their friends and families of their colleagues, uh, you know, um, or their own. 
And so I think that the judges have a pretty uh, clear idea of the horrors of that day, you know, and I think when you see a lot of outside forces try to downplay what happened, the judges aren't fooled by that because they see this on a daily basis. They see the wreckage that it caused and still causes for a lot of these people that are in their courtrooms. Do you have any overall impression of the judges? Sure. I think, you know, there, there there's the outside world's perception of the D.C. courts, and then there's actually being in those rooms and seeing the thoughtfulness that they put that, that I would say to a person these judges apply to every one of these cases. I mean, there's no... There's this perception out there that, that, that D.C. judges are just, you know, I think maybe because they're in D.C. and D.C. is sort of a left-leaning place that they're somehow anti-Trump um, or just would be reflexively partisan. And I think if you anyone watching these proceedings can't come away with that conclusion because they go through every granular detail of every moment for every one of these defendants. And, and I, I haven't seen any judge sort of just reflexively uh, side with the prosecution just because that's where their sympathies lie. They're, they're really careful about what actions that person took that, that you know, contributed to. The, and January 6th, every aspect of it is on video. It's not, these are not, you know, whodunit kind of cases. Everything is clear. Um, there may be a question about someone's intent, their complete intent and what's in their heads when they're there, and that's sort of where the judges grapple with. But what they really did on that day is not a mystery like it is in so many other cases. So what's it going to be life like for Donald Trump if he has to sit in one of those courtrooms uh, next year? That I couldn't predict because I think I think the it's going to transform the entire courthouse because it's going to become you know locked down kind of a place where there's not going to be a lot of freedom of movement like there has been like there usually is where you can just bounce from one room to the other and ch- check in on some of these cases. I think when Trump is there, it's going to be like. I mean, when he was there for his arraignment, it was pretty locked down, um, high levels of security, Secret Service, uh, and and so I think it will feel very different than it normally does. Um, but I think you know, even seeing him in that brief arraignment that he had, have to sit in front of a magistrate, not even a, a confirmed judge, and take orders essentially and and do what he's told, is very unusual for someone who used to be president of the United States, and not just any president, but a very brash one who's very you know, famously doesn't like to do what he's told. Um, so seeing that on a daily basis, have to sit there and, and face the same kind of justice that some of these other defendants do for January 6th um, is uh, going to be uh, extremely powerful. What will his life be like in that courtroom, and when will he be allowed to speak? Well, um, He's very difficult to tell not to speak, even when it might not help his legal interests. So the question is, so when he can speak may be sort of up to him, but he does have limitations on what he can say. You know, his uh, pretrial release conditions, not just in one case, but in four criminal cases, essentially say you can't harass and attack witnesses or the prosecution. And that kind of limits a lot of what he would normally talk about in these cases. Um, And so I think he'll be tempted to weigh in every day of this trial. He'll probably hear testimony that he disagrees with, and normally he'd just take to, you know, Truth Social or Twitter or whatever platform he's using and and rail about it, but I think his lawyers might tell him, you do that, we're going to quit because you're going to poison the case. I think one of the things the judge in Washington is very concerned about is poisoning the jury pool, and she's going to be acutely aware of his out-of-court commentary um, and whether that could affect the ability to put on a fair trial in Washington. Um, and so if his lawyers aren't forcing him to be disciplined, that's going to become a collision at some point. 
try to describe the room that he'll be sitting in or any of these sure. defendants. What's around them? Um, you know, there's two parts of the courthouse. There's the older side where things are a little bit more uh, dated. And then there's the newer annex, which is where Trump's arraignment was. But I think uh, my anticipation is he'll be in the ceremonial courtroom, which is on the top floor. It's a larger space uh, where you'd want to put a, a trial that was clearly going to have an enormous public interest. Um, and I think that, you know, it's they're, they're fairly ornate. There's portraits of judges in that in that room. Um, they're... You know, they're not they're not Trumpy and they're not gold plated um, like like they would be in you know sort of his one of his estates, but they're um, in, they're ornate in a government sort of way. <laughs> a lot of wood paneling, uh, you know, wood, wooden sort of pew like seating for the, for the public. Um, there will be some TV screens there, uh, both for the witnesses to see evidence and then also to broadcast things throughout the courthouse. Um, and then the que- question is. Um, you know whether that room is actually technologically capable enough of, of broadcasting uh, to other places where, like a media room, um, that's something the court's personnel are figuring out because it's in such enormous public interest in this trial. But these court proceedings are not televised, so that's uh, going to be a whole other can of worms when it gets closer. What's the media room like? Uh, well, for major events, is usually actually a couple of media rooms. There's a very tiny one that's normally open only for big trials. So, like the Proud Boys trial, for example. Um, it, was, it was open every day, and you'd sit in this very sort of kind of decrepit a little bit. The, um, it used to be an old courtroom that was then cut in half and walled off, and now it's this very tiny and unappealing windowless space um, that uh, feels like home when you spend enough time in it. But uh, it's just got two screens, um, and essentially on each screen it's sort of divided up into panels where you'd have a different view of the defendant, the judge, and um, you know, and the prosecution tables, and the evidence and so you know it's, it's a bit strange to be in the courthouse and not be watching the proceedings live you're still watching it on a screen but there's no other way to actually watch these proceedings and then also cover it live what do you prefer in the courtroom or in the media room it is always better to be in the courtroom i think to do to to really get a sense of what's happening i think i generally lean toward the media room because there's such an urgency to some of this reporting that you know, when you're in the courtroom, you can't use your devices. you got to turn your phone off. They're very watchful. Uh, it's a very old-fashioned mindset. Uh, and in the media room, you can at least have your computer out. It can send updates, especially on big cases where there's a lot of competitive coverage. You want to be able to report the news quickly or you'll hear from your editors about it. So I'll be in the media room and, uh, and sort of feeding updates as, as they come. So what would you say to somebody in the public who says the whole process intimidates me and can I really get in and and watch it? Absolutely. Um, Trump matters may be a different story, but for the everyday, even some of the bigger January 6th related cases, um, you can. The the courtrooms don't fill up. Um, Sometimes when they do, there's overflow rooms where they'll broadcast it into that room. So I I always tell people, come to Washington if they're interested in government and politics, you can go to the museums; they're wonderful. Um, you can go to the Capitol, get a tour. I think going to the courthouse, especially as these January 6th proceedings are unfolding, and just catching a glimpse of that is such a eye-opening uh, p- picture of the way government works, the way these procedures, the proceedings work, and capture such an important moment in our history that it's uh, uh, also worthwhile if you if you care about that. For the general public, if the courtroom is full. 
Do they have any other options? No. Uh, and that's actually, you know, it, well, I'm thinking it, of the overflow rooms. Oh yeah, yes. I mean, when there when there's an overflow room, and there are often in major cases, um, you can, it's another courtroom essentially that's repurposed into a room where you can view the proceedings. They'll put it on the TV screens there, and that's that's you know just as, again, nothing's quite as good as being in the room, but uh, it's also a fairly you know serviceable way to see what's happening, get a sense of it, of it, and see it live. Because um, again, if you're out of this, if you're outside the building, you don't. There's no way to see it live. It's just, it's just not doable. And so it is, um, you know, important, I think. You know, we try, again, we can only report so much. We, we try to report on everything. Um, but being in that, being there and seeing it even on the screens is better than, than even just seeing the written word sometimes. So what do you think of the jury selection process and how does it work? That, to me, is one of the most fascinating parts of any of these trials, the jury selection process. It can, it can get tedious sometimes. You see dozens of people sort of circulating in and out of the courtrooms, but each one of them essentially tells their life story, and, and they get grilled. Well, in, in bigger cases. In smaller cases, there can be questionnaires and sort of easier ways to thin out the crowd. But on January 6th cases, and where there's an element of politics, they like to interview the jurors. And those interviews can be fascinating, and it's just... You know, first, first of all, you get a snapshot of, of Washington because you're seeing all Washington D.C. residents come in and talk about what do they, what do you do, where do you live, what, what's your background, and then, you know, it's always, it's always funny the, the small world aspect, the sort of fishbowl aspect, because there are tend to be a disproportionate number of defense contractors, people who work on Capitol Hill, people who um, you know, work in government, uh, and NASA, and it's, it's always, you know, and they'll say, and you'll ask them, oh, do you know this person? They'll say, oh, you know this person involved in the case? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I went to, you know, I worked with them for three years on the Hill, and then I did, and you, you always hear those, those people are not selected for the, jur- the juries, you know, when there's that kind of relationship, but there's always these bizarre moments of the, I was a fundraiser on you know, Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, or my dad donates to the Republican Party, or, and you hear these sort of very Washington-type bios. Um, but it's also amazing because there's a lot of people that don't live and breathe government that live in Washington, D.C., and a lot of times those are the people who get picked because when you're dealing with January 6th and you people who have visceral opinions about it, um, oftentimes those are the same people that are the ones who work in government, the ones who might work near the Hill or, close, or on the Hill. Um, and so they're not eligible, essentially. And but you hear from school teachers and taxi drivers or Uber drivers, and um, you know you hear from every, everyday people who aren't consumed by it the way the people that I tend to write about are. Um, and it's a reminder: a that not everyone is as consumed by this as we all are. It's important to remember that. Um, but b that that DC is not a monolithic place. Uh, and I think that's going to become more important point uh, as Donald Trump's trial gets closer and they talk about jury selection there. What's the longest it's taken to get a jury in any of the trials you've been covering? The Proud Boys, I think, was the longest that I can recall. uh, There were five of them charged with seditious conspiracy. um, And the judge in that case, Tim Kelly, sort of takes things slow in general. Maybe that's a generous way to describe it. Um, It can be very laborious to see his proceedings. But it took uh, more than two weeks, two and a half weeks, to seat a jury. Um, and he was very solicitous of the defense objections. Um, and in fact, one of the defendants who was just sentenced before him said, you know, who got 15 years in prison, and said, but thank you for your jury selection process. I feel like, it, you know, I, I was worried about having a fair trial, and I think my fighting chance was because you helped me get through jury selection uh, in a way that I thought was, was fair. Um, and I think it's so important how those juries are picked um 
and the fact that he took two and a half weeks, maybe it felt painful for us to sit through, but probably resulted in a better process. Is there ever a time when you can't select a jury because of their prejudices? I haven't seen it here, and I think the judges return to that point often. Defendants claim it all the time. There's no way we're going to get a fair jury in Washington. Um, and then when you go through that interview process, it becomes very clear. Oh, of course you can't. There are these people who aren't consumed by the politics, who aren't going to just throw someone in prison because they don't like their political views. Um, and so I think the judges always go through that process first before they even decide if you can seat a fair jury because it becomes pretty obvious that you can in pretty much every case. I think in the rare instance where you have a large pool of people and you somehow cannot find 16 who can be fair, uh, then the judge would say, maybe we transfer to a different venue. Um, Defendants make venue motion transfers all the time. I haven't seen any single one granted because it never reaches that point. They always can agree on 12 to 16 jurors who can be fair. How many times can a defense lawyer or a prosecutor uh, dismiss a juror who potentially would serve on the jury before they get there? So it happens in a couple phases. There's you know a pool of, say, 50 or 75 who get called in, and they get interviewed, and then they can strike them for cause, which means that some of that person displayed obvious bias, so we're all going to agree that person's not going to sit on the jury. And that's a mutual decision of the, both the defense and the prosecution and the judge. Um, and then once they get through that phase and they found a sort of pool of maybe 30 to 40 jurors who seem like they passed you know, essentially the test, then there's peremptory strikes where each side, the prosecution and the defense, gets a set number of strikes. And they can say, you know, the, the defense can say, oh, I didn't like the way that jury answered one of the que- that juror answered one of the questions, so I want to strike that person. And that's, they can do that up to the limit that they have. And I think the number varies from case to case. The judges can decide, you know, based on the po- larger pool they have, uh, how many. Uh, just essentially, they have to whittle it down to 16, so however many they qualify in that larger pool. Um, is how many strikes there will be divided up among the parties. So if you're a defendant, where do you sit in the courtroom and where does the jury sit and do they see each other? They do. Um, and these these courtrooms are not huge. Um, they're not cavernous, except for that one I mentioned, the, the ceremonial courtroom. They're not really cavernous rooms. Everything, you see everything. You hear everything. Um, and so it, it's a very, become, especially for a long trial, it's almost an intimate environment that where people really get to know each other because you're in an enclosed space for many hours a day. Um, you know, and with jurors, I think defendants tend to only make eye contact with them. I think there's, you know, there's probably some strategy behind it too that they discuss with their lawyers about making sure you look confident in yourself in front of a jury um, and how you carry yourself. Uh, I've seen actually a judge admonish a defendant to stop making, you know, faces because the jury was going to see it and like that might prejudice you. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think the rooms are sometimes organized a little bit differently, how they arrange the tables, but it's all close enough that they can see each other and, and be aware of what he, uh, of facial expressions. Uh, another question about access. Do you need a pass to get in the building? Do you need a pass to get in the courtroom? Is there a limit on the amount of time you can spend in one of these trials? No to all three. Uh, one of the things I love about the courthouse, even more than the Capitol, is it's freedom of access. Uh, it's an equalizer. Anybody can get in the same way. You have to wait in the same lines. The only people who get to skip the lines are, are lawyers and jurors and, and of course, the judges. Um, but anybody else coming in, uh, defendants usually, uh, members of the press, uh, people coming in for jury selection who aren't yet jurors, 
um, and and other lawyers. Many of the lawyers who aren't part of the don't have DC bar cards who come from out of state or wherever. They have to all wait in the same line. Um, and once you're in, you're in. Um, you got to you know behave properly and act with decorum, uh, or else the, the the marshals will will have, take an issue with you. But otherwise, you can go into any courtroom, watch any proceeding, as long as it's not sealed um, from the pub, from public view, which is rare. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's it's. I, I've occasionally brought family members in who are just fascinated by some of these issues, and they come in and watch, and they they're always amazed that they can get as close as they can to some of the action. Can you talk to the defendants when they're on trial and between breaks and all that? Yeah, the ones who aren't in pretrial detentions, who are, in other words, incarcerated prior to their verdict, because um, those they're they're sort of segregated from the public even when, even when they're in the courthouse. But others who are there, yeah, you, I always find the courthouse cafeteria is this unbelievable slice of D.C. life where you see defendants who some of you you've read about related to relation to January 6th or other politically sensitive matters, uh, jurors that come and get lunch, the, the lawyers, uh, you know, sometimes there's are there notable defendants. I've seen, you know, the former general counsel of the FBI just sitting there in the cafeteria next to a January 6th defendant who I've been writing about in a completely separate, unrelated matter. Um, and... Uh, Do the judges ever come to the cafeteria? Occasionally, yeah. Uh, they don't usually sit there and hang out, but I've seen them waiting in the line like everybody else to get their get their food and coffee. And um, general public have access to the cafeteria. They do. Um, you know, uh, and so it's it's again. It's, I, I call I sort of view it as an equalizer. Kind of everyone is the, everyone is the same there. I mean, the judges certainly get their perks. It's their building, but, but other than that, it's 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 the same. How close is the U.S. District Court to the Capitol? Where is it located? Uh, directly, like sort of diagonally across the street. Uh, you can see the Capitol from the cafeteria window um, and from some of the courtrooms. Um, well, the courtrooms don't usually have windows, but there are some offices in the court that do have windows, and you can see the Capitol building. Um, and that's actually a really powerful backdrop to some of these cases. You know, you're talking about uh, uh, people who attacked the Capitol, and you're saying that building is right across the street. I can see the spot where you attack the Capitol from the courthouse where you're now being tried for your alleged crime. Uh, and I think that's created a very powerful imagery um, and sort of uh, symbolism to a lot of these trials. What can you tell us about the defense attorneys? <sighs> there, are, there are a wide variety of them. And there's a lot of uh, federal public defenders who I think have gotten occasionally a bad rap as though they're somehow not, they're, you know, because they're court appointed, they're not going to be as diligent. But in fact, I've seen quite a few of them uh, do better job defending them, their clients, than some of these retained attorneys who come in with an agenda and, and maybe more of a media savvy or atten- attempted media savvy approach. Um, but I think, you, so there's the federal public defenders who do a lot of these January 6th cases. There's um, Let me stop you there to, to describe what is a public defender. Sure. How do they get assigned to a case? So when, when a defendant is deemed in, unable to afford their own uh, criminal attorney, uh, you know, they have a constitutional right to have a, a good defense uh, at trial. And so, so the court will appoint one. And they can either be from the federal public defender's office or there's another set of attorneys uh, uh who sort of are, are on call essentially to to represent defendants when they're deemed unable to to afford their own, and um, a lot of you see that a lot of them are frequent. They're people who have dozens of these cases, um, and so you get to know them pretty well and their styles and their uh, personalities. Um, and, and most of them have good relationships with the prosecutors. They have good relationships with the judges because they're here quite often. During the Proud Boys trial, there was a one woman 
who was a defense attorney by the name of Carmen Hernandez. And you can describe how she went through her job there. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she was no longer Zachary Reel's attorney. I'd like to know what happened with all that. Explain Carmen Hernandez. Carmen Hernandez became a sort of mini-courthouse celebrity during the Proud Boys trial just because she was notorious for, I guess, picking fights. I mean, she, she fought every little detail every little decision that Judge Kelly made in that case, and in probably ways that stretched, helped stretch the trial out over the four and a half months, <laughs> maybe a month of that is due to Carmen's uh, argument, arguing with Judge Kelly, and I think she would view it as zealous advocacy, and I think maybe Zach Real would have too. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it be- she became, it became almost a running joke that, oh, uh, why, why is the trial delayed? Oh, Carmen's still fighting over whatever point she's fighting over. Um, you know, I think if I were a defendant, um, I would be happy to see my lawyer up there fighting the way she was constantly. I, I don't know if her an- antagonistic relationship with the judge was necessarily helpful, and maybe she, re- I think she at points realized that, that maybe her own client might might not be benefiting if, if the judge has an animus toward her. Um, but she, I think she is, she is the way she is, and she's been like that in every case I've ever seen her in um, because she views it as important to fight for her client. Um, and she was with Zach Real, one of the defendants, all the way through the entire trial um, and beyond. But uh, when it came to sentencing, he decided to switch lawyers uh, to Norm Pattis, who actually represented one of the other Proud Boys in the case. And so Norm represented both of them, Joe Biggs and Zach Real, at sentencing. Um, and that's a little bit unusual. They had to uh, waive some conflicts of interest there because, you know, for example, Norm might be incentivized to compare the two of them, their conduct, and say, well, this one's conduct, Zach Real's conduct was worse than Joe Biggs. Like, under some circumstances, you'd want to compare that to say, well, this guy deserves a lesser sentence because he didn't do as much as the other guy. But you can't do that if you're representing them both. So it was a bit odd. Um, you know, and I don't know if Zach chose to do that because he felt like Carmen's relationship with, with the judge was too fraught, to, and that might affect his sentence. Um, or he, he, just, he still got 15 years? He still got 15 years, which, you know, not, that, that's an extraordinary sentence, and the judge emphasized that, but it's also less than half of what uh, the government was seeking, um, or about half of what the government was seeking for him. Um, and so I don't know if that's because of the advocacy or just the judge was never going to give the full 30 years that the government wanted, but, um, you know, and I'm sure he's not happy with 15. You know, he, he's got a young daughter, and he's now not going to get to see grow up the way he would if he was home, and I think that, that came out in court yesterday. But Give us uh, your impression of Norm Pattis, and I asked this for a couple of reasons. One, he represented Alex Jones yes. uh, in the case that, uh, I think, Joe, how many billions of dollars was Jones? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't remember the number. Yeah, it, was just, a big, it was a big number. Yeah, from the uh, was Sandy Hook uh, mm-hmm. case up in, up in Connecticut. Um he repres- he was in the court and dominant in some ways in yep. his speaking. But you give the uh, give us the analysis. Sure, he, he seemed to have a better rapport with Judge Kelly, but he would you know wax eloquent quite often about the sort of historical context for January sixth. He'd talk about the the you know the founders and the the origins of the you know various uh, political principles at behind you know the free speech principles that they viewed as at the heart of the Proud Boys case. Um, and he would make it, and he he would make arguments that you know that were rooted at, aimed at the entirety of the case, and say things like, "Well, you know, if we're if we're 
too unduly harsh. If we punish these people for speaking their minds and, and speaking out on social media, even if they went over the line in their speech, uh, we're going to actually worsen the divide in this country, and and you know we're not going to do the justice that we you know are, are supposed to be doing in this courtroom. And you get very um, philosophical about that. Um, I don't know how much that played with Judge Kelly. I think they liked each other personally, but I don't know if that play, if that necessarily helps either because that's not a question of law. That's a question of, again, philosophy, politics, things that the courts aren't really supposed to consider. The other atmospherics, especially in the Proud Boys trial, was the fact that they were incarcerated during the mm-hmm. trial. And because of that, they were all dressed up in their coats and ties, and there were about four U.S. Marshals sitting around them what impact does that have on the jury? And does the jury know? Does anybody tell them that they're incarcerated? Yeah. It, it was it was an important dynamic, and the judges think about the optics of that. And I think um, the best way, for, uh, at least, and, and the way they handled it, is to not comment on it at all. And maybe the jurors, who presumably haven't done this very often, uh, aren't aware that it's unusual to have Marshall sitting there right next to the defendants at all times. Where it became more notable was when the, those defendants took the stand. And they actually had to consider this uh, when the jury was out of the room. How do we do this? Because you have to have a marshal right next to him. That's policy. The marshals have their own policy they have to adhere to. But you don't want it to be so distracting that the jurors say, oh, this guy looks dangerous because he has to have an armed marshal sitting next to him at all times. And so they did it in a weird way with the Proud Boys, at least, where they had a guy, a marshal, sitting right behind the defendant, but he was behind a dividing wall. So it was just kind of his head poking up over the wall, and it looked a little bit strange. But I think they decided that looked less... Um, overbearing or less less threatening, essentially, to a jury than than having the marshal sitting right next to the defendant while he testified. Do you have access, or have you had access to the defendants or the defense lawyers or the judge mm-hmm. or, for that matter, the prosecutor? Well, the defendants, as, as I mentioned, are segregated from the public, so you don't really get access to them. But the lawyers walk around the courthouse like everybody else, and so you do. And, and then ju- the, judge, the judges similarly do not really usually you know, step out into the hallway, and, and even when they do, they're not prone to taking questions. Um, and in fact, it probably be frowned upon to even press them, although you know an enterprising reporter could try. Um, and uh, you know, I, in, in fact, I did get access to to one of the Proud Boys, Enrique Enrique Tario, once during the course of this. Um, he he actually did a uh, public space on tw- on Twitter and took questions from media um, uh, very briefly. It was a little bit chaotic, and there were a lot of supporters on the call who sort of dominated the time, but we actually had access to ask him questions, and that was unusual. Defendants don't usually do press when they're in the middle of their own uh, criminal trial and, and haven't been sentenced yet. Uh, in fact, now that some of them have been sentenced, I expect we may hear more from them, uh, You know, although they will certainly be appealing their cases as well. During this time period, you hear a lot of politicians, I won't be too specific on this, talk about how large the crowds are and how many people are demonstrating. Were there demonstrators at this court during most of these trials? Actually, it's been quite minimal. I'm a little surprised there hasn't been more. Even when Trump was here for his arraignment, um, the protest crowd was pretty small. There was a lot of anticipation that it could uh, be a large and unruly situation, but it was not. Um, there was a trial of nothing to do with January 6th recently about some anti-abortion activists who uh, blockaded a, a, reprodu- a reproductive health clinic, uh, and that drew larger protests than what I've seen for any of the January 6th uh, cases. 
I saw some graffiti outside the courthouse related to the Proud Boys, anti-Proud Boys graffiti, chalk uh, on, on the sidewalks. Um, that was sort of the extent of the action. There's a, there's a few regulars who show up and, and will hold signs um, at a lot of these. Very small number. Count them on one hand. The judges. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Judge Tim Kelly, who did Proud Boys, Judge uh, Meta, who did a lot of the Oath Keepers, mm-hmm. and then Judge Chutkin, mm-hmm. who will do the Trump trial if it all stays the same. Interestingly, two of those three are immigrants. It is. Um, and in fact, I think in, in at least two of Trump's other criminal trials, he has judges who are immigrants. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the judges themselves have their own fascinating stories about how they end up on the bench, how they end up ended up in the certain aspect of law that they cover. Um, you know, Judge Chuckin was in was a defense attorney, and there aren't there aren't that many criminal defense attorneys on the bench. Um, and in fact, you know, although she's Obama appointed, and Donald Trump likes to point that out, you're probably better off having a criminal defense attorney be your be your judge and maybe not antagonize her um, than you are having some of these DOJ you know, lifers who who are very sympathetic to the prosecution. And I think all of them try to account for their own you know biases and their own history. Um, and not not to be lean one way or the other, but your defense attorneys have certain experiences that other judges, that other lawyers don't, and bring that with them when they're on the bench. And, and Judge Chuckin talks very often about her experience as a, as a defense attorney and why she, that that matters when she's helping adjudicate Trump's rights in trial. She was born in Jamaica, and Judge Mehta was born in India. Tim Kelly, I think, was born in New York uh, State. But the reason I mention that is, that, that, do you feel any difference in, in where they came from as the way they deal with the law? I have, I don't see that, honestly. I mean, I mean Judge Chuck, and you can hear her accent, um, and, and, you know, it's very distinctive. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's the only way you'd be able to tell, really, um, that, she, that she's an immigrant. Um, and I think that their approaches to the law are sort of, I think, more driven by their their legal experience and their educations here, and their, um, you know, I mean, maybe maybe some of their, their early experiences in their early life um, helped shape some of their worldview. But the way I see that manifest in court is really more of just how they apply the law. So, how would you describe the difference between being in Judge Tim Kelly's court and being in Judge Chutkin's court? In other words, as what what does Donald Trump have to be aware of when he comes into that court, if he does? Well, I, I'll have to, to caveat that I know I know Chuck in less than I know Judge Kelly and Judge Meta because they've held Meta and Kelly have held such extended trials that you get to see them every day and learn their mannerisms, learn what sets them off, what they like, what they don't like, and how they interact with defendants and all that. Chuck and I've seen less of because she's had fewer January six cases, especially ones that have gone to trial. Um, She's fairly no-nonsense um, in her courtroom. She's very upbeat in a way that I think Judge Mehta and Judge Kelly are not. She's always, you know, she walks in the room, she's smiling, she seems very aware of the courtroom staff and, and, and you know, is, is pleasant to them and will crack some jokes here and there. And so, I mean, that's just a deme- in terms of the demeanor aspect, that's what I can say about, about her. You know, I think the day after she was assigned the Trump case, I popped into her courtroom to see if she was going to say anything about it, and she was making had all sorts of gallows humor about how she was hoping to go on vacation in August, and that, that's now out the window, and and joking about you know, and one of the defense lawyers asked her, you know, are you doing okay? You feel safe and all that? Be be safe? And she said, yeah. I'm, she said, I'm good. My sister's helping me out, and and uh, and and you know, it was just sort of. But she seemed very positive about it. it. Didn't feel like seemed like the weight of the world was on her shoulders. 
Um, and I still see that. And, you know, she, she walks around with a security detail now. I think it's just a reflection of, of her significance and, and that, but doesn't seem to have affected her Are they, outlook. Do they ever allow you to interview them, the judges? It seems very rare. Um, I know it has happened. Like, for example, when Chief Judge Howell, who's no longer the chief judge, transitioned to Chief Judge Boesberg, I believe both of them did sort of some exit and entry interviews about their philosophy on the court and, and how they manage the court. They don't like to be interviewed or discuss their rulings in court because they're essentially they should the speaking that they do should be in court and in their papers and their opinions, their written opinions. Um, and so I think the judges are very reluctant to ever speak publicly beyond that. So what is it like as a reporter on a day-to-day basis? What's the day like? And do you take notes? Uh, Do you have access to the transcript? And as you sit there day after day, what are you constantly thinking about your deadlines? Mm -hmm. At this point, um, I mean, covering this story, this January 6th story, which is, again, so much more than the riot. It's about the the Trump level, too, and and the organizers and the inspirers of, of what happened and the fuller effort to subvert the 2020 election, it's chaotic. It's there's no no two days are the same. Which and as a reporter, that's a rewarding thing. Um, that you never you walk into court, and that, in fact, some of these completely anonymous trials that I said people me might nobody, nobody may cover. You walk into one of those, and you have there's an enormously important story about a particular police officer's experience or. Um, you know, what a defendant's st- uh, testimony might have really important clues and information that you didn't know before, and you've never heard of this case until you just happen to walk in. So the smallest case to the, the most significant ones are actually, you know, you never know where your, your major story is going to come from. Um, or a judge's sentence, for example, in one of those cases, they might have a, have a commentary or analysis of what happened that becomes very newsworthy. Um, like when Judge Amy Berman Jackson used one of her sentences to to really scold Republicans who she said were not being courageous enough to contradict the former president when he continues to claim the election was stolen. That's a very unusual area of commentary for a judge to get into, and if you didn't cover that particular case in that particular sentencing, you wouldn't have heard it. Um, you know, a federal judge saying something like that is kind of eye-opening. And, and, and so, you know, Day to day, you try to cover as much as you can. I, I find you never want to f- assume that any case is too small or too unimportant to invest your time in because of moments like that. How important is a judge, and and uh, where's their power? The judges are the sort of uh, uh, controllers of their own sort of little fiefdoms. Each of them has their own uh, in their own courtroom. They're all powerful, and they're usually treated that way. Um, and sometimes that affects their mindset, too. I think there are judges who are particularly sensitive to having their authority questioned in their own courtroom especially, um, and they will sometimes respond more more uh, angrily to those kinds of challenges than to other disputes that might arise. Um, and But I think in general... Uh, you know, they know that there are limits. Obviously, they most of what they can do can be appealed, and they know that uh, at the district level, um, you know, to the appeals court or the Supreme Court. So, so within their courtroom, um, they, I mean, when it comes to criminal trials, they have an enormous amount of power because those are not really appealable things. They can decide sort of which jurors are qualified ultimately. They can decide the terms of the trial that will define what evidence is admissible and not admissible. Um, and that could shape everything. Uh, you know, what, what a certain piece of evidence not being allowed can change the entire government's case, can make a de- change defendant's 
willingness to even go to trial if a certain piece of evidence is not allowed. So those judges have a lot of power over getting to the verdict, and then it becomes the province of other courts. As you said earlier, there are about 1,100 different people that have been charged in one way or the other. Has anybody beat this thing and not been convicted? It's You can count it on one hand. Um, there are a lot of, you know, again, the rap on D.C. juries is they're going to just knee-jerk convict. I don't find that to be true. I've seen a lot of nuanced verdicts where you'll find guilt, guilt on some counts and not on others, um, and usually for ways that are surprising. Um, and you realize you can sort of reconstruct it after the fact is, oh, maybe that piece of evidence or that thing we thought was so important to them, they viewed it in a different light. Um, but uh, I think there's been only one or two defendants that got completely... Uh, acquitted, and one of them was by a judge in a bench trial, so it wasn't even by a jury. I think when it's come to jury trials, I want to say there's been maybe one defendant who was acquitted, and maybe none. I, I'm, I'm just drawing a blank because I, I think there's at least one or two that were acquitted in bench trials. Uh, What's the difference between a bench trial and a uh, jury trial? Uh, a bench trial is essentially the judge makes the call. The defendants have the right to a jury trial, but if they waive that right and say, I just want the judge to decide based on the law and the facts as he sees he or she sees them, um, they can do that. And a lot of January 6th cases do go that route. I think maybe the defendants feel like they have a better shot. Some of these judges who view that might view the evidence more skeptically um, or take a more nuanced view of the law around some of, the, some of these specific statutes that are being charged... Um, and so I've seen, you know, I think of the trials that have happened, maybe half have been bench trials of the sort of hundred or so trials that have happened. Um, the outcomes have not been that different, uh, with the exception of those a couple couple cases where people have been acquitted, or at least of some or all of the charges by judges. Um, but it's still overwhelming uh, in terms of the, the ratio of the number of convictions to acquittals. Where did you get your training? I went to school at Boston University, and then I covered the Massachusetts State Legislature for six or so years before I went to Politico. Um, and I said I came to Politico as a healthcare reporter. I didn't think I'd end up in this uh, side of, of journalism. Um, I'm glad I did. Um, but uh, you know, covering a state legislature, I find, is excellent training for covering Washington because state legislatures are typically more functional than Congress, and you get used to sort of, okay, what is a, gover- a functional government supposed to look like? There's plenty of corruption, there's plenty of problems, there's plenty of, of things that are wrong about state governments, but it's a microcosm and a slightly more functional microcosm of D.C. that is great a great training ground. So what if you have a trial that's going to start at 10 o'clock, when do you get to the court, and then where do you sit uh, to do your stories, and when do you write your stories? <laughs> great question. Well, these days... Because at the courthouse, you also have the criminal grand juries meeting uh, who may be issuing additionally the ones who charged, ultimately indicted Donald Trump and others. Um, I get the courthouse as early as possible so I can check is there a grand jury in today because maybe we'll be getting an indictment of, say, Donald Trump's unindicted co-conspirators in, in the case that he's in right now. And for months, we've been sort of trying to get there at an early hour and say, seeing is there a grand jury activity today because there might be really significant news. Let me stop you to ask you, uh, how close can you get to that grand jury room? Not very close. It's become it's become an art uh, more than a science to cover them because you can sort of see them walk into the building and you can kind of tell who the grand jurors are because you've gotten to know them when you watch long enough and consistently enough to see who's a grand juror. 
They go to a specific room on a specific floor, which is the third floor of the courthouse. And if you see people using that room, there's probably a grand jury. And um, that's it. That's it. There are people who do it every day who can identify specific grand jurors with accuracy and, and know when and, and there's several grand juries that meet so you have to know which grand jury it is is it the trump grand jury or is it sort of the general crime grand Can you jury talk to them no and they're not supposed to talk to you um they're they're i mean i guess in theory anybody can and, and you know no one can prevent me from doing that uh outside the courthouse for example but grand jurors are specifically admonished not to talk to press and they can get in trouble if they do um and they're reluctant to because it can affect and taint a case. I think they're warned that pretty effectively. Go back to the, the physical way you do your story. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, do you write it longhand? Do you have to feed it into the digital system? Where and and when do you do it? When you're in, when you're in a courtroom, you have to take notes by hand. That's the only way. So that's another reason why I prefer the media room when I can because I'm just a, my ability to to take uh, handwritten notes is eroded over time as it's become less valuable in the non court context. Um, but. Uh, uh, so I, I tend to file in the media room or just sitting there in the courthouse hallway. Um, a lot of times the media room's not even open unless there's a major thing going on. So it's just it's kind of all over the place. You know, I think the court staff get annoyed sometimes because on bigger days there's a lot of press scattered across the atrium of the courthouse, the main sort of lobby area, and it can look at them. They were frequently told that this is not your living room, uh, but our options aren't great. Uh, you know, you can sit in the cafeteria and do it too, um, but it's it's kind of... You know, it's, it's, it's not like a very nice, neat filing room, filing center for you in the courthouse. What kind of a grade would you give um, the court from the public relations standpoint? In other words, how well are you treated? Can you get access to information at that court? I think the answer is yes. And actually, I'm very... Uh, appreciative and complimentary of the court staff in D.C., and especially when I've seen how some of the... I'm, I'm, okay. uh, especially when I've seen how some of the other federal courts uh, handle have handled Donald Trump-related matters, where they have completely shut down access. Even when they have limited access to begin with, they've said, oh yeah, you used to be able to bring your phone into the building, but turn it off. Now you can't even bring your phone into the building. you got to leave it at your hotel or something if you're traveling from out of town. And, and it's just wild, the, the ability... The, lengths they're going to to prevent meaningful coverage. And I think the D.C. court has done the opposite. Uh, when Donald Trump was arraigned and they had every reason to lock down more than they have, they actually facilitated really good access. And I think in general, you know, sure, I'd love more of these to be televised. I'd love greater access as a principle to these proceedings. I think the D.C. court, above other courts, though, uh, in that context, actually makes it very coverable and very accessible. Let's go back to the average person sitting in the courtroom. What do they see? And you mentioned this early in the conversation about the tedium. What you know, the sidebars, the breaks, mm-hmm. uh, it, the judges showing up late. Explain all that. And yeah. what, I mean, what's it going to be like for a person sitting there? I mean, I think that everyone, a lot of people have this sort of law and order idea of there's going to be these high dra- moments of high drama in the court at all times. And I think the I think the answer is you do get those, but they're not easy to predict, and they're sort of div- broken up by a lot of these, uh, uh, as you said, sidebars, arguments over the law, um, disputes about things that come up. A lot of time, defense lawyers or, or prosecutors too will try to disrupt a meaningful argument because it's not their in terms of with an objection or something to sort of uh, break the flow if they feel like they're on the losing end of a particular. Uh, 
witnesses' testimony. And so I think we saw that a lot in the Proud Boys trial. We mentioned Carmen Hernandez. She very rarely let a witness make a cogent and articulate point without objecting, especially if it was one that wasn't going her way. Um, And that became very frustrating at times, but I think um, that could be part of a defense strategy, too, to not let someone, you know, captivate the jury in a way that they would if they were just allowed to speak freely and open-endedly about their feelings and views about various things. What's a sidebar? Uh, It's where the attorneys and the judge will speak on uh, uh, out of the uh, earshot of the public and the jury. Um, and a lot of time in the courtroom is a husher, um, and it makes a white, it's like a white noise machine. And they'll, they'll, uh, it actually is quite effective. Um, they, they can stay at their tables. And they they put, put they'll take a, a phone, they have a phone, and they'll all pick up the phone and turn on the husher, and they can hear each other. But we can't hear anything they're saying. Sometimes you see as many as fifteen people with a phone in their ear. Yep, when you when you have a big trial with a lot of defendants, uh, it could be, you know, it's, it's you feel like everyone in the courtroom is is having a secret conversation, but you. Um, and we'll try to, you know, read lips if you can, and it usually doesn't work out that way. Um, and it's usually to decide things, you know, that are not meant for the jury's ears. They don't want to make the jury leave the room every time they need to have a uh, dispute about an objection that might be something the jury isn't supposed to hear. And so that's the most efficient way to do it. So as you look back over the last couple of years and all the trials you've set in, who are the people that you remember the most? And I'm talking about either witnesses or Final statements from uh, from a defendant that's been convicted. Uh, sure, I think that the I remember Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keeper, taking the stand in his own case, and I think maybe torching his own case <laughs> uh, because of his demeanor toward uh, the prosecution, his argument about the uh, um, role of the Oath Keepers in January sixth. I think he was um, very brash in a way. Um, and kind of rejected the the overwhelming evidence against him in a way that was incredible to the jury. And this is a man who has a Yale law degree. Yes, and prosecutors like to remind the jury of that because he knew very well the laws that he was supposed to uphold that, and that that he apparently did not on January sixth. Um, uh, and let, you know, when you have a very smart and educated defendant, I think prosecutors often point that out because you know. It's harder for them to claim ignorance of something. It's harder for them to claim I, I, I can't understand something because they clearly have the the, the knowledge and the background to, to understand it. Um, Who else do you remember? I, th- I, I remember Jeremy Bertino. He was a uh, member of the Proud Boys who became a cooperating government witness. He actually pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy uh, for his role in what happened on January 6th and he came face-to-face with people who he used to consider his brothers in the Proud Boys organization for the first time in that courtroom and had to testify in a way that may have ultimately resulted in their the guilty verdicts that we saw. Um, and he'll be sentenced at some point, and I'm very curious, you know, what, what he ends up getting as a cooperator who essentially did and maybe even was a driver of the events of January 6th in a way that, that others weren't, but because he cooperated and helped secure convictions of other people, he may not end up with much jail time at all. Who else? Who oh, now you're challenging my memory of, of these, hun- these hundreds of cases. Um, How many of the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers took the stand speaking on their own behalf? Or that you saw? Two of them in the uh, big seditious conspiracy case, uh, Zachary Real and um, uh, Dominic Pizzola. And Pizzola 
actually, he was quite memorable to me because he's famous before all of this, even more so than some of his co-defendants, because he shattered the Senate window with a riot shield that he stole from an officer. And that image of him smashing the window was a famous image of January 6th, well before the trial. And so seeing him explain that for the first time in a courtroom was was really powerful. Um, And he was very combative with the prosecutors. He was very, you know, he called it a fake prosecution, fake charges, I think he said they were. Um, I don't think the judge liked that. And when he gets sentenced, that may come back to bite him. What's your reaction? You know, they, Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who were not in prison in this in that case it was going simultaneously with the Proud Boys um, were dressed in coats and ties mm-hmm. they had marshals around them dressed in coats and ties mm-hmm. and then on sentencing day or even at the omnibus when they all got right. together to uh, deal with some of the motions at the last minute they walk in with orange jumpsuits on and their marshals are dressed in marshals' outfits instead of coats and ties. What's uh, that impact on you when you watch it? Well, you know the jury's not around anymore. That you know, the, the, it's a reminder that these, you know, these are not. I mean, it's a reminder that essentially justice is served or being served because it's it's you know they're they're inmates. They're they've been held in pretrial detention for more than two years in some cases, um, which is you know a whole other. Sub, subplot of their 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 case, but um, it is it is jarring to see because you know that you you want the jury to see them and not be distracted by a prison uniform that shouldn't wouldn't be fair to them for the jury to see that, um, but to see that these are people who who essentially um, are are being held by their government um, and it's a very heavy it's a very heavy thing uh, power heavy power for the government to have and a heavy thing to to witness. Um, and to see them, you know, again, when you approach sentencing, they're they're begging, begging for mercy, and it is a very different posture than the many hours of video of them on January sixth. There, some of their demeanor in the courtroom when they're not in their prison uniforms, um, and so it's just a stark contrast. How would you describe some of the people that are in the court audience that have nothing to do with the case or have something to do with the case? Like mothers, fathers. I don't see. I don't remember many fathers. Yeah. But uh, describe that. What you see. Um, that to me is one of the more powerful things, especially with being in the room as opposed to watching it on the screen. Um, you know, Enrique Tarrio's mother uh, was there almost every day of the trial. Um, wives and family members, sometimes children of the defendants, are there, and it's a, it is a reminder: a not to caricature some of these people as much as. You know the crime may be worthy of of, of punishment, but the crime may have been a part of this horrific moment in our history. Every single person involved is a person, and they have outside lives who are destroyed. And in some cases, that's their own fault. And a lot of the defendants will get up there and say, "This is my fault. I did this. The pain you're feeling, my, that my wife and my my children are feeling, is my fault." Um, and so there's not a lot of sympathy in the sense that the judge is not going to say, "Well, just because your family is suffering doesn't mean I'm going to go easy on you," because you made the choices that you did, um, but it is an imp- important to remember that it's not just about the person on the stand or in the, in the, def- on the defense table. It's about all the people that are in that in the audience too, and that that can be very heartbreaking sometimes. There's a woman that's been to almost every session of the Proud Boys, um, and when one of the Proud Boys was sentenced, she was in the audience, but she turned and put her back to the judge. Uh, and refused to look at the judge until the sentencing was finished, until he left the room. How often did you see something like that? 
it's rare, and I think the marshals wouldn't often allow that. Um, you know, because you, you know, there's a, a there's certain rules of decorum in the courtrooms, and B, you know, I think it's a safety reasons to to not allow sort of that kind of behavior in the courtroom. So the fact that she was allowed to do it is unusual. Um, but I think you know there are people who are going to be in that room who are who they they've developed their own opinions of the judge and the proceedings. They agree with some of the defendants that these were sham proceedings, and they're going to display it however they can. It's their only that's their only window to see the judge in front of their face, and so maybe they wanted to make a symbolic protest. Have you given any thought to writing a book? <laughs> it's a question I get asked a lot, and I feel like. I would love to, except I'm so in the day-to-day now. I'm so conditioned to when there's news, you you run and you write that news as fast as you can because it's so competitive right now that to get in the mindset of stepping back and saying, well, what is the bigger story to tell and what do I have to say about that that I, that I haven't, that I others couldn't or say better than me, it's, it's sort of, I, I hope, you know, it's humbling um, and I hope someday to have the answer to that, but at the moment I don't. But in that light, do, do you have a gut reaction to what the big story is, having sat through all this and know uh, it's yeah. day after day? Yeah, I think there is an answer to that, which is that um, it, it's, it's sort of cliche, but it's the, the fragility of democracy, the fragility of our institutions. Um, the collective story of all of this is how close we got to much, much, much more dangerous territory on and before January 6th. Um, a lot of that comes out in the trials when you see you know, individual moments of violence or individual moments of, uh, you know, close brushes where lawmakers who might have made, they, if they made a wrong turn, they would have ended up in the hands of the mob. Um, you know, and the fact that it didn't happen is still kind of miraculous. Um, that, that's the sense I get is, is just how close we came and, and that some of the forces that drove that are still active and, and ongoing. Um, and so it's an ongoing story, not one that ended on January 6th. Kyle Cheney of Politico, follower of the D.C. Court, District Court and all the Gen 6 stories. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. If you've been enjoying this podcast on Stitcher, please be aware that platform is ending operations at the end of August. But don't worry, you can still find this podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts on many other podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the C-SPAN Now app. 